All right, psychology nerds, welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, psychologist and anger researcher and host of Psychology and Stuff, and I have two, count them two, great guests today to talk about sport and performance psychology. We are going to talk about, in part, this recent New York Times editorial, I was the fastest girl in the world until I joined Nike. Before we get to that though, I need you to do something for me. I was hoping if you like psychology and stuff, you should because you're listening to it right now. But if you like psychology and stuff, please go and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to the show, all of that helps other people find the show. So with that, today, like I said, I've got two really exciting guests. Both of them are sports psychologists here at UW-Green Bay. They've both been on the show before and they're back to talk about some recent research and other sport-related psychology stuff. First, she is the chair of the exercise, uh, excuse me, she is the chair of the Sport Exercise and Performance Psychology Master's Program here at UW-Green Bay. She has a PhD from West Virginia. She's interested in professional development and employed applied sports psychology and the effects of physical activity on mental health. It's Dr. Jennifer Gassa. How are you, Jenna? Hello, I'm good. Today nice. is beautiful sunny day. Yes, no, not a sunny day. Um, yeah, I think we had a sunny day a couple of weeks ago. We did. Is that right? I, I noticed how it affected my mood. Yeah. So, did you have did. more or fewer of those in Brazil than you had in, in Green Bay? A lot more sunny days. More, more yes. sunny days. Huh. When it gets real cold here and it's too cold for clouds to form. We have a few sunny days, right? <laughs> Yes. So very good. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, again, that is. Uh, so second, he's got a PhD in sports psychology from Northern Texas, who's in his primary research interests are on the psychosocial aspects of sport, exercise, and health. He's also a competitive table tennis player and do not call it ping pong when you talk to him about it. It's Dr. Alan Chu. How's it going, Alan? I'm doing great. Good. When was that? Have you been doing uh, table tennis tournaments as of late? No, I, I haven't done it recently. Uh, not this semester so far, but I'm going to do a really big one next week. Uh, okay. During Thanksgiving weekend, I'm going to be at nice. Washington, D.C. playing oh, nice. the North America Team Championship. Nice. Yeah. You know, what's too bad about that is my nephew is going to be here and uh, during that time and he, he, no, he calls it ping pong, but mm-hmm. he is, uh, he has actually wanted to meet you for, for this very reason. So I think when I tell him that you're out of town, he's going to say, oh, he's too scared to play me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. That's too bad. I didn't give, I, I don't give him a chance to lose to me. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I will, uh, I will let him know. Someday I'm going to set up a match because I want him to know how good you are. Cause, mm-hmm. uh, he, I don't think he's met too many players who are better than him. Um, I mean, he's, you know, he's like an 18 year old. It's not like he does competitive tournaments or anything. But mm. I don't think he, I think he really, really believes that he's like <laughs> going to be a good level. learning experience. Yeah, I think, for him. I, I think he might learn a lot. Yeah, that uh, tends to happen quite a bit when people say that they are pretty good. Yes. Until they actually see real table tennis player. Yeah. yeah. I will go on record as saying that I thought I was pretty good <laughs> uh, until that time we played over at the uh, at the Crest Center, and mm-hmm. I realized like I, I just kind of thought like oh, I, I can hold my own, right? You know, I used to play in the basement, and then uh, no, no, I can't. So um, very, very good. So um, okay, so let's. I want to start. We we have kind of two articles to talk about, but from different sources, right? And the first thing I wanted to bring up because Jenna, you brought this to my. I had read it already, but you brought it to my attention for the show, which is this this editorial, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about it. But uh, it's Mary. It was written by uh, a woman named Mary Kane. Uh, I believe she is 
an adult now, is she? Yeah, yeah she's 23, I think. Oh, okay, so she wrote this, uh, I was the fastest girl in America until I joined Nike. Mary Kane's male coaches were convinced that she had to get thinner and thinner and thinner, that's a quote, then her body started breaking down. So let's talk through it, because this is a, a pretty, I mean, it's a really, really good, interesting editorial. Um, I did notice there's a Nike response to it now mm-hmm. when I went and read it that they have provided a, a follow-up. But what what was it that made you want to talk about this on the show? Um, I think that it's um, very interesting for many reasons. I think uh, for the show specific, well, let me give maybe context yes, in please. case someone hasn't uh, seen the story yet. Uh, so she was very, very successful in um, since... Um, middle school actually because she said she went to a middle school that was together with a high school so she could play varsity or run you know varsity once when she was like in seventh grade already so she went to like state varsity championship when she was in seventh grade um so she was you know early on she was part of like uh, world championships you know junior world championships she was the youngest runner to go to uh, adult, you know, um, a world championship um, in, in the USA. Um, and, and then she was recruited by um, this coach who saw her, you know, running the world championships, uh, the junior ones, when uh, she was, I think uh, she was a sophomore in high school. And so he started coaching her from afar, but she was still in high school. And when she graduated, she was recruited to run for him at, in Oregon. Uh, and they have this like huge Oregon project um, for runners and um, with the sponsorship of Nike. So that's mm-hmm. how, you know, they are connected to the story. Um, and then, you know, she tells all, about all the emotional abuse she suffered, especially connected to um, um, losing weight, right? So she uh, was all the time being even public shamed uh, for her weight, and she started to focus a lot on her weight. Um, she started to also have suicidal thoughts, and, you know, her mental health um, suffer a lot because of that. Um, and then she also had physical issues, uh, breaking bones, right? So, um, uh, because when you don't eat uh, properly, uh, she 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 didn't have her period for mm-hmm. like I want to say three years. I don't remember mm-hmm. now the timeline. Yeah, I think I've always seen. Yeah, years, but yeah. this is a ba- I mean, is not uncommon and uh, with highly level athletes, but it's also a danger for. Um, Future, future development of osteoporosis, osteoporosis. Uh, so so she did have like uh, you know some fractures in her bones and so she was suffering physically mentally and um, and then until she stopped and then now she you know finally found the strength uh, to speak up I, I was telling Alan when I was coming here I don't think I would ever you know, mm-hmm. have the courage to speak up against Nike and, you know, one of the main uh, running programs in the country. I think it's very, very brave. Um, but, you know, going back to the question of why, why did I think about this uh, for this topic? So we were, you know, thinking about sports ecology related topics. And one of the things that she talks about is that there was a, you know, so-called sports psychologist uh, in this uh, running program and that he was aware that she was like cutting herself and having, um, you know, even suicidal thoughts. And, uh, and he, you know, he was, uh, she said that basically, you know, he didn't help her much. And 
set things on the lines of like, oh, you have to toughen up kind of thing. Right. Um, so, so I think, you know, um, thinking about our role in sports psychology, um, you know, in cases like this, in, you know, in our work in general, our work, you know, in cases of uh, abuse. And then also, especially with like the whole, like uh, more and more, I think cases like this are coming up, like, you know, the sexual abuse cases with Nassar and, and Michigan State. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we, as a profession, have been thinking more about this. Um, and then also, um, you know, we can maybe talk a little bit about how, um, you know, pursuing um, further education in the area can be helpful Yeah, um, to be competent. So I have, I have tons of thoughts and questions based on everything that you just said. But before we get to them, Alan, do you, do you have anything to add about that article or anything based on, because I know you, you, you provided me with another article that we're definitely going to talk about as well that is certainly relevant. But do you have any... Anything to add on the regarding the story of the genetist? Sure. Uh, nothing in particular, but just okay. also really appreciate the fact that she's willing to speak right. speak up. And I think we need more of that in order to raise the awareness of the general public to really change the trend in athletics being um, abusive sometimes or mm-hmm. being a little bit too tough on athletes. Right. So I've got I've got two thoughts one of them i've literally never has never occurred to me until just this moment we were talking about it but first i just want to comment and say you know my experience as a as a counseling psychologist working with female athletes and performers so i'd add dancers and and um, actresses to the mix has been that the body shaming is so unbelievably rampant Mm -hmm. that it is i mean clients used to describe to me uh, oftentimes dancers would describe to me coaches really publicly shaming them. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, making it very clear in front of all of the other, uh, not the audience, but the other uh, kids and women in class. Mm-hmm. You know, one one person would say, yeah, that she would come up and she would pinch my side and tell me I needed to skip dinner that night. And, you know, that it was so, that sort of body shaming was so rampant. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had these pervasive, extraordinarily negative uh, consequences on their mental health, on yes. their physical health, and so on, is, I, I guess, part of what I'm wondering for people is, I mean, this is just my perception as a, as a counseling psychologist, do we have a sense for the scope of that problem Do we have, and how serious it is? Yeah, uh, a, a little bit. Uh, it's always hard because um, people are not always willing to disclose, even if it's like anonymous research. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that I like went back to read, uh, so, you know, to, um, become a certified mental performance consult- consultant, you have to take, uh, among other things, you have to take an exam and part of like one of the readings was about the female triad, uh, which includes, you know, uh, eating disorders. Um, and so there, there were a lot of numbers on that. And so mm-hmm. I basically just read this, you know, an hour ago. <laughs> Um, right. And uh, so dancers, you know, lean sports um, like um, running mm-hmm. um, and then um, way, way sports like wrestling, wrestling. boxing, yeah. um, and then also aesthetic sports like, you know, uh, cheerleading goes a little bit on that, um, gymnastics, gymnastics. Um, yeah. diving uh, that sometimes, you know, like how 
uh, th- there's this belief that you, if you look nicer, you get better points and mm-hmm. people are going to judge you better. Uh, so they have a higher um, prevalence of eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, so in general, this type of sports have about like count about a third of um, wow. the athletes they have found as high as a third of them having, you know, eating disorders or at, at the very least um, symptoms. Because sometimes it's like, you know, you cannot... Um, not otherwise specified, you know? So you have some uh, disordered eating people talk about as well. Um, But but about like a third. And and when you look into the population, it's not even 10%. So we were Mm -hmm. talking about more than 30% for the sports where people were emphasizing, Mm -hmm. you know, your weight um, all the time. Right. Yeah, and I think I'm trying to think about how much I mean, I'm certain that much of this falls on coaches and teachers and and so on for putting pressure on that. And parents, I think, probably for putting that pressure. Some of it ends up feeling, I don't want to use the word natural consequence because I don't think it's natural. It's a societal consequence or a manufactured one of being on stage, right, of Mm -hmm. having people judging you essentially judging you physically yes Mm -hmm. they're judging your performance but they're also like you said judging your how you look and so you know at least implicitly and so how you know trying to or just envisioning the role that that must also take that if you're you become probably hypersensitive to how you appear mm-hmm. in a lot of contexts, and that probably bleeds into you know discussions of your your weight and and things like that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think when talking about the scope, I think it's probably more prominent in more prevalent in the Division One level in college. You know, a mm-hmm. lot of them need to be weighed regularly, right. and either the strength coach or nutrition coach would tell them to lose weight. Or like they have a specific meal plan that they right. would need to eat certain type of food, probably only like a small salad for dinner rather than things that they should eat for more energy. So I think the scope is somewhat broad for the uh, professional level. Even just through my experience working with athletes, uh, we do some mental health screening. And mm-hmm. based on the data that I see, the athlete that I work with, I think about 30, 40% of them have concern about their body like really low self-esteem or body image you know in in that regard yeah so this is this brings me to the second thing i'm really really thinking about this uh, the the sports psychologist it sounds like who worked for nike who was kind of sending the message i don't want to put words in this person's mouth but sending the message toughen up Mm -hmm. right because i think for the first time this occurred to me you know when i when i worked as a counseling psychologist even though I worked for a counseling center, my allegiance was always to the client, mm-hmm, right? And mm-hmm. there was, that was unquestioned. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I mean, that was there were no circumstances in which I was trying to do anything other than make it, uh, like, help the client heal or deal with trauma or whatever. Mm-hmm. I find myself wondering for the first time who – when you when – you, it's something like wh- whether it's the Packers, whether it's – if the sports psychologist works for the team – is their job to help the client deal with their mental health or, or the job to get them on the field? And, you know, and 
I've not ever considered that sort of dual allegiance and how it's sort of baked into the territory and a mm-hmm. lot of these things. If this because I can see how this person and I'm not I'm, to be clear, I'm not justifying any of this, yeah, yeah. but I can see how this person would perceive their job as being. I need to get this person ready to perform Mm -hmm. and that might mean telling them to toughen up in order to get them on the court, (laughs) on the the track, (laughs) on the track. And and so how does that work? Like what, you know, what are the ethics surrounding that side of things as far as who, who do they report to? Who, where is their allegiance? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I firmly, firmly believe like the same way as uh, in counseling, the client ultimately should be right. uh, the athlete, but you have to make that clear to the to the organization too, and then also explain to them how having the client as you know the athlete right. as your main client, um, you know, is beneficial to them too. So in that case, for example you may think like in the short term maybe say toughen up and so she Mm -hmm. can like maybe run one (laughs) you know that one uh at that point may like if you're not being critical enough it may seem like something better for the organization in the long term is not like she's really in psychological suffering she's not well uh, she was like cutting herself and, you know, having mm-hmm. suicidal thoughts at that point is not only good for her, but for the organization that she takes a break and take, takes care of her mental health. Right. Um, so I think not always, you know, organizations understand that. And that's definitely hard. Um, but uh, I have I have worked with like coaches who understand this well. And then I always like talk to them. you know first when I arrive and I say you know I'm gonna have individual meetings and you're not gonna know what they're about and uh, and but that's you know what makes me be effective if they know that I'm gonna like they're gonna tell me they're anxious and then I'm gonna tell you that they told me that and they're gonna be afraid of me out they're just not gonna tell me anymore and then I'm useless (laughs) you know so I think Many coaches are good at understanding, some are not. And some coaches still think that mental health right. is just, you know, BS. So right. it varies a lot. Yeah. It's really tricky, you know, in in our profession. You know, we, we work with coaches, we work with the supporting team, including um, maybe athletic trainer, like other people who mainly focus on the team performance rather mm-hmm. than um, just the individual athlete's well-being. Uh, so I think for us, the struggle is to maintain those relationships while right. setting a little bit of boundary at the beginning. You know, mm-hmm. if we set the boundary at the beginning, helping them understand that um, the work that we do, you know, is for athlete well-being uh, and eventually leading to the performance. That will help coaches understand. Okay, what we do sometimes is confidential. Sometimes may not be always um, in line with what they in line with what they think. You know, we we talk to the coaches. Very directly that way, right. usually. Yeah. Well, I suppose this is, and it's really just me being naive that I've not thought about this before. But I, I suppose that this is very, this is something that medical doctors who work or as trainers mm-hmm. have to deal with all the time, right? Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that it, because really, we're talking about the difference between getting a person on the field this weekend for the game mm-hmm. and their long-term health. Yeah. You know, and yes. whereas. I'm going to use the Packers, even though I have no reason to believe that. <laughs> but, um, but you know, if if the question is, okay, we we need to get so and so on the field this mm-hmm. week, 
and yeah, that might exacerbate the injury so that they walk with a limp for the mm-hmm. entirety of their second half of their life. Yeah. They might prioritize getting them on the field despite mm-hmm. that. Whereas um, the hope would be that they're prioritizing their long-term physical health. Yes. And, um, and I suspect that is going to differ by level of sport and the consequences mm-hmm. and the length of career even. You yes. know, that you may care more about that if it's um, – you know, football is a shorter career than some other sports. And mm-hmm. so maybe you prioritize Giannis's mm-hmm. sh- sh- long-term health because you've got a long career with him. Mm-hmm. But that's, I'd not, I mean, that it's, it's all really troubling to think about, yes. <laughs> the, you know, the way in which um, those allegiances can differ. Yes. And, and it's also interesting because depending on the level, you're going to have some pressure from the public too. Mm-hmm. So if, Someone is being wise and, uh, you know, not risking limping for the rest of, you know, if they think they still have a good, you know, career ahead of them and decide to sit out, maybe the fans are going to be, oh, you were weak or you're, you know, what's the point of paying you? How many millions, you know, uh, you should, you know, give your life. (laughs) And then, but then it's interesting because then if someone actually dies or have something uh, Mm -hmm. very serious because they try to be you know the tough ones and Mm -hmm. and keep playing they're like how come no medical doctor took them out of of the field right you know about 20 years ago there was a a viking maybe you may have heard of the story but Corey stringer was his name and he was an uh, offensive lineman for the minnesota vikings and he died of dehydration Mm -hmm. uh, during practice well and um it was super, super tragic. In fact, the NFL named an award after him. And mm-hmm. there, was a, there have been legal disputes since then. I haven't followed very closely. But one of the things that led to that is that the day before he, or maybe two days before, he had been on the like cover of a paper. He'd been in, there had been a photo of him throwing up at practice. Mm-hmm. And he was humiliated. Mm-hmm. And he said that he, part of the reason, the belief is that part of the reason he was unwilling to take a break mm-hmm. and to sit down was because he was so embarrassed by, mm-hmm. and he didn't want to tell anyone yeah. that he was too hot. And so he played to the point that he died mm-hmm. at practice. Um, but to your point about the role that the public can play in mm-hmm. encouraging people to make Bad decisions, Bad decisions yeah. You know, ultimately, yeah. which is um, really, really sad to, mm-hmm. to, to envision all that. And you're right. I mean, that you do see people putting so much pressure. I mean, the, the number of times I've heard people essentially say, well, so-and-so would have played, you know, or whatever. Yes. It's like, well, maybe so-and-so is an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, yes. And yeah. and I think that connects also well with um, the article that Alan showed because I think um, that's a lot about the culture of the sports, right? Um, and it connects with um, like our us reflecting about our uh, work in sports psychology and how we may be so inserted in the culture that sometimes we don't take a step back and look at you know. I mean, right. I I truly hope. That people who are well-trained wouldn't ever, like, look past someone who's cutting themselves and having suicidal right. thoughts. But uh, but sometimes, like, more nuanced, um, mm-hmm. you know, you, you see so much, you know, yelling and, you know, low-key, let's say, abuse of coaches that is kind of natural. Uh, but then, you know, um, maybe we should, maybe, you know, we definitely should always, you know, keep a, 
a foot yeah. out and many of us are previous um, athletes too who, mm -hmm. who work with sports psychology so we've been you know growing up in, in um, environments like this maybe I, yeah. I think Ellen had a more positive experience I had like <laughs> I had like coaches you know telling like when I was like I don't know 12 it's like oh you you look like a bunch of shit because you're not moving like you're you know you're right. 11 and and I I never thought much of it and today I'm like wow that's completely yeah. insane um so so yeah so I think it's important for us to take a step back yeah. out of that you know um culture I think that's really important for me I've for the record have certainly never performed athletically at the level you two have or the level we're talking about but but I did grow up playing a lot of of sports and And um, it, it is it is very true that you get I think it's it's you get so built into that environment or sorry you're so the product of that environment that it is sometimes I'll share stories sometimes with my wife who, who didn't play sports as competitively yes. as I did. And I'll tell her things that were said to me in the field, and she will say, seriously, that's like just no way to talk to a child. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yes. no, I get that now. But at the time, I didn't. You yes. know, at the time, I just thought that's how that's how that's coaches talked. Yeah. And you know, I, I remember once I was hearing, I heard a story about, so there were some stories about how some coaches here, and this is good 10 or so years ago, but mm -hmm. how some coaches here were talking to mm -hmm. athletes and um, all the people involved in the story are no longer IGB. But I remember having a moment where I said, how quickly would I be fired if I ever talked to a student that oh, way? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, if I ever in one of my abnormal psych classes mm -hmm. just went on that kind of rant, yes. I would be, I think, fired by the end of the day. Yes, you know, yes. and so it is, you know, it is striking how we sometimes perceive a very clear difference, but like how coaches speak to their players is very different from what we accept from teachers yes. or whatever, except from teachers. Or, or even like adults, like if, uh, you know, my boss today would say yes. that I look like a bunch of shit, you know, yeah. I would say, well, maybe I don't want to work for you, you know. <laughs> yes. Has Janelle ever said that? <laughs> <laughs> no. Maybe okay. in her head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I think so. somehow in, in the athletic culture, not just the coaches, but I think Even the parents, the sport fans, they mm -hmm. somehow kept embrace the fact that it could be a little rough. It could, yes. it could be a little bit yelling is fine. Mm -hmm. You know, a little bit of F-bomb would be fine in the athletic right. culture. Even though if you watch a Packers game, I, I, you know, you would hear them, uh, yeah. hear someone say that quite a bit. And I think it's unfortunate that athletics is put in that position to, right. to create that negative um, culture, a little bit toxic, you know, sometimes. Yeah. Right. Well, in some ways, it's, it's really the result of having ignored the, the findings of psychological research and education research for the last 30 years, right? Mm -hmm. Is that we know the best way how, well, and not actually, frankly, business research. Mm -hmm. We know the ways to get the best out of people. Yes. And it's very rarely to yell and scream at them or, mm -hmm. or abuse them verbally or physically, right? Yes. <laughs> that's, that's not how you how you get people to do their best, yes. um, by and large, you know? Yeah. And so, um, and, and we know that, but it just hasn't translated into athletics at the same rate. Yes, I, yes. And I think to be fair, like I, so I've, I've gone through a whole bunch of coaching certification over the last year for, for youth sports. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear the like yelling things like that are not tolerated mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. i mean that's all very clear as part yes. of that now whether or not that translates into how, pe how people behave <laughs> yes. i mean it, it, 
it certainly does for me, but not yes. for others. Yeah. Right. I don't know whether you have to go through that training, but nowadays I like that a lot of organizations are pushing uh, the safe sport yep. campaign. So mm-hmm. I had to um, do that. Yes. Even referees, yeah. um, anyone who work with youth sport have mm-hmm. to go through that training. I think that really helped not only because they try to like those who are involved try to make sure they don't uh, abuse children, but they also know the steps to report those right. incidents. So I think that's a uh, a great uh, improvement in in, yeah. in that regard. Yeah. And you know, it's really interesting. So I was just talking to another coach about this, and he was saying. Oh, the training made him super uncomfortable. He's mm-hmm. like, oh, that was really because it's all the things you just described. And, mm-hmm. and I think what was interesting is that to me, and it's just a background as a psychologist, it was all stuff I'd encountered many, many times mm-hmm. that yes. I knew was out there. And so mm-hmm. I do, I think you're right that like that kind of training is really important, especially for people who don't have any kind of background in mm-hmm. some of this and don't necessarily know the, the potential to harm in those situations mm-hmm. and um yeah well so before i want i do i want to talk about this other article but i guess first i want to see i want to make sure we close the loop on the the uh new york times one anything else that we should say what's sort of the take-home message from that story do we think oh so many right. uh we can list them all yeah, going. yeah uh, i think from a sport psychology standpoint um i think we definitely so one thing I, from our profession i think mm-hmm. we we and we've been trying to but we, we still need to do a better job of like um advertising how to hire someone who's competent because mm-hmm. people um, in, like the population doesn't know like how do I choose someone to work, you know, with my kid or or you know who are higher into my program? Um, so I think that's one thing for the profession in general. Um, uh, I think, uh, oh man, I think for the um, one thing that we didn't talk about much today, but I thought that was interesting that she, when she talks about her experience, she talks a lot about how the training was designed for men. And that for women, that was a lot more harmful because the low um, the low percentage of body fat makes you stop your periods, which is dangerous for your bone density, right. uh, which could result, you know, breaking <laughs> breaking bones and which and is worse. what happened, right? She had which is stress yeah. fractures. And, yeah. yeah, and and she got close to a to the point that you know she could have um, problems for her the rest of her life, like could not you know recover anymore. Um, so I think that's a good thing to think about too. Sometimes we try to standardize things independent of you know your gender. Um, right. So I think uh, it's a good takeaway to to keep thinking about in the future. You know, training mm-hmm. for women versus men because um, it's kind of like I said. It's I think uh, one of the researchers I saw saw that. I think out of the runners um, that they researched, there were like more than 60% of the women who were going through a period without having Mm -hmm. their periods. Uh, So it's kind of naturalized, but it's not good for you. So I think people are discussing more about this and that's good too. Um, I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) I think (laughs) one thing kind of take away, I I think is try to implement a little bit more I don't know whether investigation would be the right word, but the NGB or any sport organization at a high level or Nike, I think there should be 
like a third party investigating mm -hmm. uh, the program, how everyone is doing. Um, so, for example, at the University of North Texas that I went to, we actually mm -hmm. uh, had a group of um, intercollegiate athletics committee um, members who are faculty or staff. So they will actually interview um, athlete at the end of the year to see how they are mm -hmm. doing both physically and emotionally. And those interviews are confidential and anonymous so that you know they get the feedback and they can you know, report to athletics if right. any issue would actually happen. I think a lot of athletes would actually be willing to voice themselves if there are people reach out to them mm -hmm. um, to see how they are doing in a safe environment. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem that's the case for Nike or many right. places yet. Yeah. Well, that's a thing. Like, I often think about in, in terms of these instances, really, and so often these things come out because they're sports and that makes them sort of popular and interesting to the public. But I look at situations like this and I think that uh, this is in many ways the consequence of when things become so high stakes mm -hmm. and there's a lot of money involved, people start to prioritize things other than human health and human mm -hmm. well-being. And so, you know, you when you've got elite athletes and you've got um, whether it's in college, in college or professional or, or anything where there's a lot of money to be made, um, people start to make decisions that aren't based on human well-being. Mm -hmm. And I think we see this in, in this uh, transition to the article you you uh, told me about, but we see this in some of the very high profile sex abuse scandals mm -hmm. that we've seen in athletics. You know, I think um, at Penn State, mm -hmm. um, we see cases where, you know, people are hiding things. Yes. And the reason they're hiding things is because if it gets out, it's it's going to cause problems to their bottom line. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they end up prioritizing things other than the athlete's health and other mm -hmm. than, you know, people's well-being. Yes. So let's um let's talk about this the this article so it's titled Where is Safeguarding in Sports Psychology Research and Practice It's by Gretchen Kerr and Ashley Sterling at the University of Toronto it was just published uh, in the Journal of Applied Sport Psychology Alan uh, kind of lay out a summary for people of what what this article is all about yeah absolutely so basically the author lay out the background that there's been more and more issue with athlete maltreatment, especially with recent years. Um, Larry uh, Nashkar Nash uh, from Michigan mm -hmm. State with the sexual scandal uh, in gymnastics, but also actually in many other countries, uh, they mm -hmm. just did some research to look at uh, maltreatment for child and adolescent athletes. They find out at least 40% or so of athletes have experience sexual, emotional, or physical abuse from coaches in the athletic environment. So the author basically provided background uh, and then saying that uh, we have not done as much or as much as we should in sports mm -hmm. psychology, um, both in research and practice, um, because there are a few factors that uh, Jenna also kind of touched on, you know, with the socialization that mm -hmm. ourselves, you know, included, we are athletes, we are We've been in that environment to just tough it up, you know, right. rather than really thinking through uh, whether those approaches are correct or whether we should report it. Um, just even myself, I've, I've, I feel a little bit guilty of it also when I um, was trained as a graduate um, c 
consultant, you know, I also saw some teams that coaches would have some physical punishment uh, mm-hmm. toward athlete, and and I, I wasn't sure what I should do, you know, and I just kind of kept it silent, which is what this author mentioned, you know, we've been quite too silent as sports psychology right. consultant. Um, and then the other issue would be lack of education and training. Um, I don't know about Jenna's training, but me, uh, throughout my master's and PhD training, I've not taken a course or any specialized training on maltreatment or child abuse. I mean, I know the general concept, right. but then we have not taught what we should do if we see those cases. Um, no assignments, no uh, exam related to any of those areas. Um, and I think the only training that we had was probably taking the exam uh, about ethics, like right. a general ethics um, related to any type of maltreatment, uh, mm-hmm. but not, not specific training. And then the author also touched on uh, the barrier for reporting. Uh, I mm-hmm. think right now there's not a good system in the sport organization for sports psychologists to really report these kind of things. You right. know, who should we report to? Is it the AD or we, should we talk to the coaches or should we um, to, to talk to the athlete to see, you know, um, whether we should seek help from the outside? I think those are the issue that we should try to move forward a little bit, both for research right. and practice, to find a way to really uh, make a difference in handling those cases, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I suppose that the, those reporting lines are probably unclear as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about the allegiance to and who, you know, and, and the need to communicate that effectively early on, but mm-hmm. I suppose who, you know, when you have concerns where you take them is also similarly unclear. And especially yes. because the concern, I mean, the, the, the chances are the AD and the coach have a pretty good relationship, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. if you've got a problem with a coach, is that where you go with it? And, yes. you know, and how do you, um, how do you deal with, with those things? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I did, I did have a, an ethics class and we, I mean, we did go over this, but I feel like, so more recently I did the, the safe, uh, say say sports uh, training mm-hmm. because of the um, U.S. Uh, Olympic Committee like <laughs> registry that they have. So it's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, that's uh, helpful. So they do like background check, and that's more recent. Also, they started right. to do background check and make people take this training. Uh, but I thought that that was much more helpful in the way of uh, knowing what to do. Right. But it's still a little gray, right? So sometimes. Um, some things are pretty clear. Okay, there's abuse here, and I could go like maybe straight to law enforcement even. Mm-hmm. Um, but then sometimes, you know, for example, grooming was you know some types of, uh, um, of you know situations that was in the training, and it's like okay, this could be grooming, or it could be a person with like no clue of what they they're doing, or not, mm-hmm. no training. Should I talk to the person first, or right. you know talk to the AD first? Uh, so I think some some situations uh, get a little bit more on the gray area and they are harder um, to decide um, anyways. Right. Um, but yeah, but I think uh, anyway, it, it's good to like um, improve the training. I think I, I agree with Alan. I think uh, uh, we should do a better job with that. Do, do we know to what degree some of the underreporting might mimic just the underreporting that happens 
in general. I mean, you know, and because we know that this is a problem mm-hmm. outside of sports as yes. well, that that sexual abuse in particular is underreported, mm-hmm. yes. drastically underreported. Yes. Um, I, I don't know, uh, like, for sure, but I, I could imagine that it's similar to not wanting to report someone in your family. Because right. um, when you are in the sport setting, um, you have you know, kind of that power dynamics too that you would have with like, a, you know, a parent or uncle or whatever, um, you know, grandfather. Uh, that Because it, it's the most common situation mm-hmm. is someone in your family, right? Um, but then it's like, okay, who's going to believe me? You know, everybody mm-hmm. kind of, usually it's like, you know, uh, coaches that are likable or what someone it, in position of power, right? Yeah, I was, I was just thinking that the power differential piece mm-hmm. is, I mean, sexual assault is always difficult for people to report. But mm-hmm. when you add to that an element of there being a power differential mm-hmm. um, and a significant, so I, I think the family dynamic you just described, I think workplace mm-hmm. uh, harassment and assault is mm-hmm. also something that, you know, is notoriously underreported. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, trying to develop systems within those systems to, mm-hmm. to make sure that people can um, report in a safe way. Mm-hmm. Um, and of, of course, those things are going to look different depending on the, the structure and the system. But it sounds like, I mean, in some ways, it, tell me if I'm wrong on this, but in some ways it feels like, you know, sports psych is a, within the grand scheme of things, a relatively new Mm-hmm. field and yes. not and that is not to say it's like brand new by any means but it's, it's newer than, yes <laughs> newer than other sub elements of psychology or mm-hmm. other other areas and so some of this is just stuff that takes time to work out and to yes. think about some of these dynamics and get smart people like y'all mm-hmm. writing and talking about them yes yeah, yeah and i think um I, talking about under reporting i i think if not more under reporting at least the same level as in mm-hmm. other environments um i think because thinking about if in a work em- environment you know mm-hmm. if you report sexual assault the worst case you work for another company mm-hmm. but then in athletics if you report it you never know if you're at a d1 school you know you don't know whether you can go to another d1 school right. and still play you know so mm-hmm. a lot of time i feel like athlete would probably under report and tolerate for four years and then i get out um yeah. and then just or, it there, or yeah. with the gymnastics team was like the national the doctor of the right. national team yeah. Yeah. so yeah. basically you know yeah we have mentioned him multiple times in this episode we should probably <laughs> yes. say more so larry nasser uh was the he was a medical yeah he was the team physician yeah. Yeah. team physician for the national olympic team he also was he, he State. yeah and i don't exactly remember what his role was there but he, uh, he i think he, was the physician of the gymnastics team too. Okay. I don't know if he worked with more teams. Okay, um, but he sexually assaulted 150 mm-hmm. uh, yes. girls and women in his in his career, um, and I mean it. It was people have certainly heard the story. I'm, I'm guessing, but that's the name we keep bringing up <laughs> yes. um, and talking about. Um, yeah, I I am. I don't know. We're bringing up all sorts of things that I've <laughs> I've not really spent a lot of time thinking about. But now, as we talk about them, I am, you know, mm-hmm. and just thinking about like the, you know, essentially how complicated 
this field is. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess before we get to some of that, other things about this article you want to talk about, Alan, or mention? Yeah, I- it's actually related to oh, uh, Mary uh, Nashman. Nash- um, on the last, basically the last paragraph of this article, um, it borrowed a quote from Ali Reisman or Reisman. Oh, right, right, right. Yes. Uh, so one of the, I think, Olympic gold medalists mm-hmm. yeah. in gymnastics, she mentioned that I don't have the exact quote here, but she mentioned if the adult listen, uh, the adult actually um, try to intervene. Uh, it, this is something that could be avoided. This is the mm-hmm. most saddening part. Uh, is that you know not because this happened, but this could have been avoided if right. there are some professional who intervene, which could have been sports psychologists. Mm-hmm. I think right. so. Um, this really kind of. You know, make me think about you know what would be my role in you know, working with teams and how do we really try to push this forward so that this kind of incidents doesn't happen happen again. Mm-hmm. I think we should read it. Um, I've got the quote yeah, here. Yeah, go ahead. Right. So, uh, if just one adult had listened, believed, and acted, the people standing before you on this stage would have never have met him, Nasser. Uh, the ripple effect of our actions or inactions can be enormous, spanning generations. Perhaps the greatest tragedy of this nightmare is that it could have been avoided. Whether you act or do nothing, you are shaping the world that we live in, impacting others. All we needed was one adult to have the integrity to stand between us and Larry Nasser. Um, so, yeah, that was Allie Raisman, R-A-I-S-M-A-N. She said this in 2018. She was an Olympic gymnast. She was one of his victims. Um, yeah, a really, you're absolutely right. Like really mm-hmm. powerful, important mm-hmm. quote that, that was in the article that you mentioned. Um, really, it just really, really, really sad stuff. Um, I want to transition if we can, unless we have other stuff to say about that. But I mean, so much of this is about training uh, mm-hmm. future sports psychologists mm-hmm. and you two are in the business of mm-hmm. training future sports psychologists. How do you think about this as you structure classes and curriculums and things like that, which you're doing for the, for the masters and uh, uh, sport exercise and performance psychology here at UW Green Bay? Yes. That's very interesting because I feel like everything, you know, I read and I do, you know, I keep thinking about how I could integrate that to, mm-hmm. you know, the new courses we're designing. And, and that, you know, one of the courses is actually ethics, right. you know, and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should get them all to do the safe, you know, safe sports training. Um, but there's definitely, you know, conversations like we're having right now are conversations that graduate students should be having, like, okay, we're, how, how great is the, this line, you know, mm-hmm. in this different specific situations? How would you, you know, make decisions um, in these situations? And, um, and I think that's only the first step, right? Because uh, one very, very important part um, of learning is, you know, when you're actually, then you get to work, to get to the internship, to, to the field, to work with athletes, mm-hmm. and then, you know, feel comfortable of like, you know, like how Alan was in a situation that he saw something that he thought was physical abuse to, you know, be, bring back to supervision. And, and you know, in this case, we've been like uh, uh, preparing to do a good job with that too, um, to supervise well the, the students. So we can be present and available also, um, uh, for students to learn how to navigate those those situations, because like other areas of psychology, it can it can get you know hard to make decisions and um, and know you know what to do in those right. situations. 
So let's uh, let's talk about the program more generally for a little mm-hmm. bit. Like, what are the what are students learning uh, when they? Uh, so the pro, I guess to back up for a second, the program <laughs> will kick off in the fall of 2020. So accepting applications right now, mm-hmm. um, and I'll say more about that in a moment. But first, you know, when when students arrive in 2020, what sorts of things are uh, are they going to be learning? Yeah, so there are uh, three courses that they will take their first semester, uh, which are theories, theories of uh, sport exercise and performance psychology, uh, ethics, and also is it counseling? Yeah, counseling, counseling skills without the counseling name. Yes. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so students basically first semester, they will be taking those foundational courses that mm-hmm. um, are based in both psychology and kinesiology to get a sense of what sports psychology really is. And mm-hmm. I would mostly, most likely be the one who teach theory, the mm-hmm. theory course. And just piggyback on what Jenna said, I think probably I would incorporate some of the reading right. related to maltreatment into my class. I, I did my syllabus already, but I, <laughs> I, I think it would be worth incorporating some content related to that. So that's uh, basically what the first semester would entail. Um, mostly coursework, but then as they uh, continue second semester, they will learn more applied mm-hmm. type of sports psychology. Uh, and then second year, they will be actually implementing those skills to do internship or maybe doing a thesis right. using those concepts. So let's say, I know you've been working on establishing partnerships with the mm-hmm. community. Um, well, where are some of those internship type locations that people yeah. end up? People are very excited. So in the community, I mean, <laughs> so so we already have actually um, like a contract signed with a ballet for a oh, place for one person. They are kind of starting uh, their sports ecology uh, program, I guess, this year. So they have a new person there working, uh, providing sports ecology services and um, and they want, so Ballin Title Town has, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, they got athletes for, mostly for injuries, but then, you know, um, it, they may get someone who's anxious about going back or, you know, mm-hmm. maybe expand more into working with coaches, athletes, or parents. Um, and then, so the Green Bay School District, uh, especially high schools, um, mm-hmm. they're interested also in this type of work. I, I know for sure that Prabo and East uh, East Green Bay are mm-hmm. especially interested. Um, but, you know, I, I talked to the coordinator of um, extracurricular activities. Nice. And they're actually uh, not, o- not only open to having interns working with the athletic teams, but also with uh, the band and, you know, the, the kids who do ensembles and, you know, musical mm-hmm. performance and even theater. Um, yeah, you know, we've been talking almost exclusively about sports in this episode, <laughs> yes. but I mean, sport and performance psychologists work with other performers as well. You yes. know, whether it's of dance, musicians, actors, and actresses, and so yes. forth. Right. And I think Jenna talked to the is it music mm-hmm. music department here. Yes. Also, yeah. Yeah. Yes, because the 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 students who major in music here at UWGB, um, they have to. Um, work kind of have a semester long uh, presentation that they work throughout the semester and they have to present and kind of so high stakes here you know uh, it's their major Um, so they are also interested in having uh, our interns working with uh, these students so they can be psychologically prepared uh, for those presentations which is very interesting because so I was talking to the um, chair of music um, in the summer to Mm -hmm. set set this up and um 
I, I want to say that it was like maybe two weeks after I talked to her, uh, someone in my online course in the summer, sports psychology, um, mm -hmm. in the discussion board, she said, oh, I used to major in music, but I would get very nervous. <laughs> and I had to change my major because I couldn't do anymore. I couldn't perform. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm sorry that this is not like two years from now when we we're going to have interns working, you know, yeah. with this. <laughs> That's super sad to hear. Like stories like that really make me sad because mm -hmm. I just think about people not doing something they love because of something that is like they can overcome. Yes. You know, we, yes. we know they can. And mm -hmm. um, and so it, it always uh, I mean, ultimately, if people I know people find the things they're passionate about and that's great. Mm -hmm. But I always just think, yeah, I, it always makes me sad when I hear stories of people not doing something they love because they're scared. Yes. Um, yes. yes. Um, so I guess as we finish up here. Final thoughts about the program. Anything else you want people to know? Application, when are applications due? Uh, applications, so we are working with like priority day, which is okay. February 1st. I want to okay. say if you want to be safe, uh, definitely apply by February 1st. I've been getting a lot of emails in the last few weeks of uh, potential students, nice. people who are really thinking uh, about applying, people saying that they're definitely applying. Um, I cannot, I don't know a mm -hmm. number of people who are definitely applying, but I would say that it'll be safer to apply by February 1st. Um, and But if we do not get the 20 spots filled by February 1st, then we have until um, June 1st uh, okay. that we're going to take as they apply. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I will also something we kind of like alluded to, but we do have two tracks. Mm -hmm. So we have applied oh, right, right. track and a thesis track. So people who are interested in research um, you know, can can do uh, can do their research work with Wonderful. us too. Very and cool. I think something I'm, I'm just gonna add really quick is that uh, mo both me and Jenna are the only two uh, CMPC, so Certified Mental Performance Consultant in the Northeast Wisconsin area. So we are certified to supervise right. students so that they can work toward their certification in the future. Also, right. our program is also set up pretty uniquely in a way that. Uh, it fulfill all their coursework toward their certification. So basically, we want this program to provide as much experience and as much um, training for them as possible uh, to work toward that. And also allowing some flexibility. You know, like right. Jenna mentioned, it's not just sport. If you want to work with military, music, um, performance art, you know, those are very welcome to apply. Super. That is great. Hey, um... So if people want to know more, the website is uwgb.edu slash SEPP, S-E-P-P, is yes. that right? So yes, uwgb.edu slash SEPP, S-E-P-P. Um, that stands for Sport, Exercise, and Performance Psychology. Wonderful. So real quick as we finish up, um, where can are you on Twitter anywhere yes. else people can find you? No, <laughs> Alan is not on Twitter. I have to outdate it. Yes. <laughs> so I do an awful job with Twitter. Disagree. I love, I love you on Twitter. Okay, but okay. go ahead. Because <laughs> the tricky thing is just that, one, I forget to enter Twitter every day. Mm. Uh, so, you know, Twitter is like a fast-paced type mm -hmm. of thing, and I forgot to get in there. But also that I have like three different accounts now because <sighs> I manage my own, then my business account, and then, you know, the, right. the master's uh, account. The one for the pro. So, oh, yeah. yeah people can so follow the, them on Twitter as well. Yeah. So that's UWGB underscore SEPP. Gotcha. Okay. 
Um, and my personal one is uh, Jana, J-A-N-A, underscore L-F, as in Lima Fogazzi. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Very good. And, of course, they can also find you on uh, the website for both mm-hmm. the sports psychology program, but also just the psychology program. Yes. So the undergraduate, I shouldn't say just, the undergraduate <laughs> psychology program. Great. Can you email me questions, too, or, you know, tweet me questions. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, if you want to find me on social media, you, want, you can find me on the researcher social media, research gate. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there we go. Perfect. See my publication there. <laughs> Perfect. Very good. All right. And you can follow me on Twitter. That's uh, at RyCMart, R-Y-C-M-A-R-T. You can also follow Psych and Stuff on Twitter and Facebook. That's at Psych and Stuff. Uh, You can go there for additional information about psychology. You can ask questions. You can even suggest an episode. Uh, This is actually going to be our last episode of the semester. So we're taking a little time off for the holidays. And then we will be back in January with a whole bunch of new stuff. Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick, and the engineer for today's show is me, Ryan Martin. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Valise. Special thanks also to our guests, Jennifer Gassa and Alan Chu. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcasts, to check out our past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin. Keep being amazing.